on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Go tell it on the mountain. We are now in our second week in a series called Hope for the Holidays. You know, you go into the stores and, and you hear the, the beautiful music playing. You see the direct de- de- decorations. And, and there seems to be this joy in the air and this festive mood. But I am very aware that some people have a difficult time experiencing those emotions. Because I'm one of those people. And I'm not sure why. I think part of it was because when I was younger, my dad was an was a alcoholic, and around the, the holidays, he drank a whole lot more. And, and I have no fond memories of the holidays at all. It's a, it's a rather dark time for me. And so as I wrestled with this message about hope for the holidays, it became even more difficult because I got a call earlier in the week from one of my really good friends and an old partner of mine in my law practice to tell me that he had just lost his 13-year-old son in an all-terrain vehicle accident. And so on Monday, I drove to Houston, and Monday evening, I sat with Bill and Julie Barfield as they wrestled with these profound feelings of, of hurt and confusion and pain. But in the midst of all of that, there was this amazing undercurrent of hope you see, their 13-year-old son, Warren, had, had made a faith commitment to Jesus when he was 10 years old. And apparently, I, I didn't know Warren well, but he had this, this light that shone into the world. And over 2,500 people showed up at his funeral. He had, he had impacted so many people in just a few years here on earth. And Bill and Julie themselves had, were Christ followers and made faith commitments. And they were convinced that they will see Warren again in that eternal life that follows this time-constrained life on this earth. And so even though I left them that night, they still had some hope. But on my drive home on Tuesday, I began to reflect on the story I encountered in preparation for this message about a guy named Mitch Heisman. Mitch grew up in the Northeast, very wealthy parents, very, very smart kid. And, And during the course of his education... He adopted the prevailing philosophy of our educational system, which I would call the materialistic view of the world. Essentially, that the physical laws of matter can explain everything we see, everything that that results in the universe are simply a matter of quantum physics and the random collision of molecules and atoms. So it began 18 some odd billion years ago with an explosion, the origin, no one knows uh, from, what, from where it came. Then, then these atoms and, and molecules exploded into the universe and over billions of, of random chances they formed into planets and then on planets they, life developed and, and here we are in the 21st century as human beings as simply a result of the physical laws of matter. And he was so bright, he got into Harvard University, and he began to continue to study physics and philosophy. And and he began to write, and he wrote a 1,900-page book about the implications of materialism. And ultimately, he concluded, and he realized that that meant 
that there was no God and no transcendent purpose if everything was determined by the random collisions of matter. And so on February 12th, 2010, he walked into the Memorial Church on the campus of Harvard University, took out his gun, and blew his brains out. Folks, there's just a stark contrast. And I've been very emotional this week as I've wrestled with these these things. And, And the centrality of hope in the human condition becomes so apparent. Jill, Julie and Bill, who had it, and Mitch Heisman, who did not. And so the question I want to explore today as we, we go into hope for the holidays, is there really hope? We have to address that question. And my answer is an emphatic yes. And my authority for that answer is the most quoted book in the history of mankind, the most read book in the history of mankind, the book that has been the most published in the history of mankind, and that's the Bible. And the God who designed us has much to say about hope. There's a proverb that says, without hope, my people become sick in their spirit. Without hope, my people perish. And so the God who designed us understood the centrality of hope. But like so often happens, science is just now catching up with something that's been in God's book for thousands of years. In fact, in the 50s, there was a professor of psychology who became intrigued by hope. Is hope important? And here's an experiment that he ran and him ex- and a professor explaining about these experiments to his class. All right, so in the 1950s, there was a guy named Kurt Richter. Anybody heard of this guy? He graduated from Harvard University, went on to be a professor at John Hopkins University, and he did a series of experiments that were later called the Hope Experiments. Anybody hear of the Hope Experiments? All right, so what he did was he took rats and he put them in a high-sided bucket of circulating water. And for this particular experiment, he had two groups. The first group of rats, he put in the water, had them swim as long as they could until they drowned and sunk to the bottom. Guess how long the rats lasted in the first group? How long could a rat swim until it died? Only 15 minutes. This is why anytime there's a flood in London, you see tons of rats everywhere on the news. Second group of rats, he had them swim as long as they could until they started to sink and drown, and then he saved them dried them off, let them rest for a few minutes, put them back in the bucket of circulating water. Guess how long they were able to swim the second time? 60 hours. 60 hours. 240 times longer than the first group of rats. This doesn't make any sense, right? How is this possible? The the rats didn't all of a sudden get stronger, did they? He didn't pump them full of steroids. They didn't have enough time to rest for their muscles to grow after the first bout but they were able to go for 60 hours, 240 times longer. Dr. Richter concluded that the rats were able to swim longer because they were given hope. Purpose equals hope equals energy. There's actual data to back this up. Purpose equals hope equals energy. There's actual data to back this up. And so we begin to see that science is beginning to learn what God has known since the moment he designed us, is that hope is a critical part of the human experience. And so as we study hope for the holidays and talk about hope for the holidays, let's go to some of the, just one of the reasons why Christians have true hope. And we're going to go to a passage you'll probably know in Isaiah chapter 9. And to give you a little bit of background, the Christian worldview, the Bible, lays out 
that in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. They were in this perfect setting in perfect relationship with God. And for whatever reason, they rebelled. They revolted against God, violating his justice and had an irreconcilable break in the relationship. They were without hope. But God, loving us as human beings, decided that he himself would come to reestablish that relationship. And through his infinite wisdom, that that was going to take many, many years, thousands of years. And so what he wanted to do was he wanted to give us hope in the interim. So he began to tell his people, the Hebrew people, that he was going to do this, that he was going to come back and and reconcile our relationship, repair our relationship. And he was doing it through prophets and predictions. And so he spoke in about the year 700 BC, 700 years before Jesus was born, God spoke to his Hebrew people through the prophet Isaiah. And this is what he had to say. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Now this is really important. Some people think Jesus was a great teacher or he was a human being. Our Bible, even beginning back with the the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament says that this was God himself. When you violate infinite justice, the infinity of God has been violated. There's only one infinite being that can pay that debt, and that is God himself. And so God came down, and so Messiah is God himself, Isaiah was saying. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So God himself will be the one that accomplishes this reconciliation. And we have that prophecy from 700 years before the time of Jesus. Then, of course, we all know the story in Luke, Mary becoming pregnant, she and and Joseph going to the stable in Bethlehem and, and having the birth of this child that we know to be the Savior, predicted 700 years beforehand. Now, even as I say, this is why we have hope for the holidays, two enormous questions begin to emerge in my mind. I mean, they just erupt. The first question is, is this true? You see, there is no hope from a lie. There's nobody in here who has hope in their life, who has transcendent hope because of the tooth fairy and the Easter bunny. It just doesn't happen. And if Christian story is simply a story of a sky fairy sprinkling happy dust, there is no hope for anyone. And you see, this question isn't generated by me. This question is generated by the very book that I love, the Bible. And so in Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to have that, that scripture here. Paul was a Jewish Pharisee. He went around murdering Christians, did not believe in Jesus. And what happened was Jesus encountered him on the Damascus road, blinded him, then restored his sight and, and taught him about the life of, that, that Jesus had led. And so Paul saw the resurrected Jesus, and he went around all over the known world sharing the truth of the Christian gospel, the good news. And everywhere he went, people gravitated to this good news. And then he'd leave and go on. And what he would tell them is, Jesus was crucified, he was buried, and he resurrected. Well, some people started to come in around behind him, 
and tell some of the churches that he planted, oh, no, no, Jesus was a great teacher, but he didn't really resurrect from the dead. And Paul wrote to one of those churches, the church in Corinth, and this is what he had to say about the claim that Jesus did not really resurrect from the dead. He said this, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. And then he goes on to say toward the end of the chapter, if you don't think there's a resurrection, you know what you ought to do? Not what Mitch Heisman did, blow his brains out. He says, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you ought to go out and eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. That's the Christian Bible saying that, folks. And so, yes, we have to address the question, is this the truth? And I was an atheist for most of my life until I got to the age of 37. And for a bunch of reasons, I went on a spiritual journey. And I studied for a year and a half, and, and I was wrestling with all these issues. And finally, I had to decide... The, the, the moment of decision came. Do I believe this is the truth? And so I decided, well, there's four ways I really have of knowing truth. The first is through logic and reasoning. That's one way of knowing truth. The second is through observation. We can observe things and know it to be true. The third way is by a direct subjective experience. And the fourth way is by applying a principle in our life to see if it works. So I'm going to go through each of those. So I decided, okay, one way to know if Christianity is the truth is, is it logical? Does it make sense? Is it reasonable? And as I began to read as an atheist, I came across an author named C.S. Lewis, Lewis, who had been an atheist himself, a brilliant scholar at Oxford. And he said, look, you know, I've talked to anthropologists here at Oxford. Anthropologists have gone all over the world to the most remote civilizations, and every single civilization knows that it's wrong to murder. No one went there and taught them that. Everyone that they found knew it was wrong to murder. And he says that was programmed inside them. And if it was programmed inside them, there must be a programmer. There must be a God. And so I became a theist. I I had to admit that that was reasonable. But then the whole question of what about other faiths? So so I started studying Buddhism. I practiced Buddhism for about a year and a half. Jan still talks about that in my crazy years, going going om and studying, you know, meditating and these other other things that were going on. But the Buddhist faith just, it it did not seem coherent to me. It didn't seem to hold water. One of the things it says is that over many lifetimes, if you meditate and become a very good person, then you get to go be with God. You become enlightened. But there was no accounting for, no addressing injustice. I knew that in my mere 37 years, I had done many terrible things. I had violated any sense of justice in the world. And I could not understand how any faith could 
could not address a violation of injustice, that it could just sort of disappear into the cosmos. That just didn't make sense to me. And so for that and many other reasons, I ended up dismissing Buddhism. And then finally, as I, as I began to look at Christianity, I said, okay, this is one of the religions. I'm, I'm looking at all the religions. And as I studied it, I began to see Christianity is not a religion. When, when we share what's gone, out, gone on in our lives, when we share the story of Jesus, we talk about it as the gospel. The gospel is our translation of the Greek word evangelon, which means good news. You see, every other faith, every other religion says basically this. Some man had this, has it, had this really tight connection with God, whether it was, whether it was uh, Muhammad with Islam or Buddha or Confucius or Joseph Smith with Mormons, had this, had this really sort of inside track with God. He understood this moral code and he passed on the moral code. And if you follow it well enough, if you manage to live by the moral code well enough, maybe, just maybe, you'll get to heaven. Folks, that's not good news. It's, it's demoralizing, not knowing. And what the Christians said is that isn't, that isn't what faith is about at all. Good news means just that. When you watch the news at night, you're, you're finding out about events that actually happened. The reason it's called the gospel, good news, is because when the apostles exploded out of Jerusalem after Jesus died and resurrected, and they'd seen him resurrected, they exploded out of Jerusalem, and they didn't take a code book and say, if you follow this well enough, you might get to heaven. That isn't what they said. They said, we have news for you. God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. He's lived the perfect life that we didn't live. He died on a cross to make the payment for our violation of justice. So justice is satisfied at the cross. He resurrected from the dead, defeating death. And he has gone to be with God. And if you will put your faith in what he has already done for you, then your relationship to God is reconciled. There is nothing else to be done. That is good news, folks. That's the good news of the Christian faith. Amen. I mean, I just, I cannot, I cannot think of any better news. And so the gospel became just, just intellectually coherent and satisfying to me. So for all those reasons and many, many more, I believed it was intellectually the truth. Now, there, there may be people in here who are still wrestling with this. I would love to talk with you. I have great respect for people who have questions. I, I still have some questions, okay? I'm convinced of the ultimate truth of the faith. I still have some questions. But I journeyed for about two years asking everyone questions. And I, and I got tired of some people getting mad at me saying, oh, you don't have faith. What's wrong with you? And, and, and almost you know, being judgmental toward me. I'm, I would love, if you have questions, I'd love to have lunch with you. Love to give you books that helped me. Love to discuss these things with you. If you ever want to do that, it's, it's, it's a joyful thing that I, that I get a chance to do that sometimes. And so I believe it's intellectually the truth. The second way I talked about is by observation. You know, uh, we got a pilot in here, Spencer Burkhalter, and he can explain this a lot better than me, but we all believe in flight, 
but probably can't explain why it happens, okay, how the, how the air goes over the wing. I, if I get this right, wrong, Spencer, I'm sorry, but at different rates of speed, okay, because of the shape of the wing, and it causes what we call lift, and that's what keeps the plane up in the air. But most of us don't know that and can't explain it the way Spencer can. But we believe in flight because we've observed planes. That's why we got on a plane. We didn't say, okay, explain to me the aerodynamics of that and maybe I'll get on it. We saw them fly and say, okay, this seems to work. Observation is a valid way of knowing truth. And, and as I observed authentic Christians, people I knew who were not just going to church on Sunday but were really living out their faith, applying the principles in their life, I saw an amazing thing. I saw marriages that I wanted to be like, my marriage to be like. I saw families that seemed to have a deeper love and connection than other families who weren't following God, who were following the principles of this world. I saw joy and peace and contentment. And so by observation, Christianity seemed to be the truth. The third way that I could think of that we know truth is by direct subjective experience, just, just a knowing at the emotion and heart level. You know, I know I love Jan. I, I can't show you a picture of that love. I can't necessarily explain. You know, I can give you some good reasons for it, but you can't prove it logically like a mathematical proof. But I know it because I experience it directly. It, it's in my heart and my soul with every fiber of my being. Well, as I've journeyed with God, I have felt his presence. That is a that is a valid way of knowing truth, folks. Or knowing, If you've ever experienced God's presence, maybe in nature, maybe singing a worship song, however that has happened, that is a valid way of knowing that Christianity is the truth. And I've experienced him deeply in times of worship here, in times in his scripture. And even when I've prayed on occasion, I've heard God, not audibly, but in the quietness of my spirit and my mind. It's usually in the form of a thought that I know I would not generate. Like, why don't you try being nice to Jan? Oh, really? Where'd that thought come from? You know? So, so these thoughts that I know I would not generate come into my mind, and I, I know it's God talking to me in that sense. And so through direct subjective experience is another valid way of knowing truth and knowing the truth of God. And finally, through application, through applying the principles that this book has to offer. Every time I've applied it, it has made my life better. And this is a painful example to use, but I, th I think it's important. I'm very, it's, it pains me to say that early on in our marriage, I was not faithful to Jan. And, and those were dark and bitter years. But my logic was, God has given us intimacy, and it's a pleasure. And, and why should that be limited to one person? I actually would think to myself, well, I wouldn't eat just the same meal every night. You know, why, why just one woman? And so I was unfaithful. And like I said, those were dark and bitter years, folks. But when I became a Christian, I said, okay, I'm all in with God. I'm going to apply his principles in my life. And as I became monogamous, as, as our relationship became exclusive, I began to experience aspects of intimacy we began to not just give our bodies to one another, but our hearts. We began to feel an emotional connection. We began to feel a spiritual connection. So in so many ways, the truth of God's word just exploded in my life, and I saw the reality and its truth as I played it out by applying the principles in my life. So for those reasons and many, many more, I believe Christianity is the truth. Now, now the second question that has to be addressed that I believe this, this whole topic brings up is, 
well, is there any hope for this life? I mean, uh, you know, that's great that we're going to be with God and be reunited with him. But, but what about this life? My answer is yes, there is. See, in John 15, 11, Jesus says this. He says, if you put into practice my commands, then my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. Does anybody here want complete joy? Does that sound like a hopeful thing to look for in life? I know I do. I mean, who does not want complete joy? How would, not, how would that not give you hope? And so what he says is you can get that by applying the principles in, his, in, your, in, in your life and the way you live. So that's one of the many reasons why Jan and I choose to do life in a faith community. How, how am I going to learn the principles that I should apply in my life if I'm not hearing the word preached, if I'm not reading the Bible, if I'm not in Bible studies? So often, I know the principle, but then I see someone applying it, and I say, oh, so that's what it looks like. And, and seriously, living life in a faith community, you often see a creative and positive application of some of these teachings that you might not have thought of. And so for all those reasons, that's why Jan and I choose to do life in this faith community, the people we love, because it helps us apply those principles and it gives us hope that we're going to experience that complete joy. And you know what? Over the years, we've seen our joy increase. So we continue to have more and more hope. We can continue swimming because we see hope all the time by applying God's principles in our life. And the second thing that, that I can say about this, this world and the hope in this world is that you have an incredibly meaningful job assignment. Jesus said, you know, he was about to leave. And he said to his guys, I'm leaving. And they go, wait a minute, who's going to do stuff down here? <laughs> you're going to be gone. He said, I tell you the truth, you're going to do greater things than me because you have the Holy Spirit, you have God within you. In 1 John, he explores that a little bit more, and he says, when you live out the principles of God, you actually manifest God's presence here on earth. So you know how the, the city of San Antonio is gonna see Jesus this, Easter, or this Christmas season? It's through the very, our very lives we will manifest God that way. And so yes, there's hope in this life and hope in the life to come. And one of the most powerful stories I've ever heard to demonstrate this came out of Florida. There was a, a lieutenant governor there named Jim McBride. And, and he became a Christian. And he'd been sort of a, you know, a hardliner on, on crime and everything. But he became a Christian. And he's reading the Bible. It says, Jesus said, you know, blessed are you when you came and visited me in prison. And his followers are like, when did we visit you in prison? He said, well, when you visit anyone, when you do something nice for anyone, the least you do it for me. So Jim McBride began to going, going to the prison outside Tallahassee. And he would go to death row, and he would read his Bible. And he would try to go to each cell and share the truth of Christ and share the hope of Christ. And there was one guy who would be curled up on the floor, Roger Hester. And, and he started to ask the guards about him. He said, oh, don't, don't bother with Roger. <laughs> He's gone, man. He's, he's a hard case. And, and so Jim McBride looked up his file. And he had been the foster care system in West Virginia. And, and his parents were, were abusive. And at a young age, they began to severely beat him. And when, about the age of 12, what they would do when he would misbehave, they would lock him out of the, the house, even in the winter, in the mountains of West Virginia. And what he would do then is he would walk a mile down to the gas station and sleep on the floor of the men's room. 
And finally, he was rescued by Child Protective Services, put in foster care. But when he finally aged out of foster care at the age of 18, he moved to Florida, got involved in drugs. One night high on meth and who knows what else, he, he broke into a house to try to steal to, to get some more money for his drugs, and he killed the whole family. And he ended up on death row. And he was just a mess. And, and when Jim McRide was visiting him, he'd just be curled up in a ball, and he, he obviously hadn't bathed, and he was filthy, and there was, there was uh, roaches crawling on him. But he, he just had the sense that he should at least sit, and he'd pull up a chair, and he'd read from the Bible. So every week, he'd read for about 10 minutes, and he'd move on to other prisoners. Did that for a few months. And then one day, he said, Roger, I just want to tell you, Jesus promised, if you invite him to live with you, he'll live with you. All you have to do is say, Jesus, and he'll come and live with you if you want. And, and he said he just heard this kind of groan, Jesus. And nothing seemed to happen, so he left. But when he came back the next week, Roger was up and moving around. He'd cleaned up. He'd gotten a haircut. And he went up to the cell. And he said, what's going on here? Look at this place. It's clean. You look great. He said, well, Jesus lives here now. I had to clean it up. And, and that began a friendship. And they began to study the Bible together. And Jim McBride began to bring him books. And after a few months, Roger said to him, you know what? I, I need to be telling these other prisoners about this. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a job to do now. And so he began a little Bible study in, on death row. And, and as Roger's time for execution approached, Jim McBride tried to get that stayed. But try as he, as he might, he couldn't. There, there simply was no legal way, not, no loophole that he fit in to avoid execution. So they knew it was coming, and, and Roger said, Jim, the night before my execution, would you come to my cell and, you know, read with me? Just read the Bible to me? And he said, yeah, I'll do that, Roger. And he actually got the guards to let him in the cell that night. So he pulled up a chair in the cell, and he said for about an hour, he was just reading the Bible to Roger until he was sure he had fallen asleep. He hadn't moved. So he come, went over, and he pulled up the covers, gave him a little peck on the cheek and left. And he came back the next morning at six to walk with Roger to get executed. As they were walking down the hall, he, he saw tears streaming down Roger's face. He said, my friend, I, I know this is scary. I know you're sad, but you know, it's going to be okay. And he turned, Roger turned to Jim McBride and he said, you don't understand. These are not tears of sadness. These are tears of joy. And Jim McBride said, how can that be? He said, because in a few minutes, I'm finally going to be in the arms of a loving father. And last night, for the first time in my life, someone tucked me in and gave me a kiss goodnight. Do you see the hope that our faith gives us? hope in this life, that we have meaning and purpose. There is meaning and purpose. There's transcendent purpose. The materialistic worldview does not hold water. It's not the truth. And there is hope in the life to come. And it's all because about 2,000 years ago, a small child was born. And finally, 
God had begun the rescue plan.